the realm of your salvation, the, the relationship of eternal love that you have for the Son, we as adopted children share in that love and, and know that our only anticipation is to experience that in its untold fullness for all of eternity. Keep us encouraged, persevering, remaining faithful in the battle because of those glorious truths of having been redeemed. And even now, as we look at your word and come to the final message, O Christ, of you from heaven to your church, through these seven churches chosen by you to receive these seven messages, will you teach us as we come to Laodicea? Will you, over the weeks ahead of us, help us to learn the lessons that you would have us to learn? And do your perfect and gracious and sanctifying work in us. And particularly this morning, would you prepare our hearts to come to your table, to come to your table humbly and with an act as, as an act of worship and faith and confidence and assurance that we are yours. And we pray these things in your matchless name. Amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 3, or Romans, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 is uh, noted uh, in the prayer that we are coming to uh, the last of the seven churches that are recorded for us in the book of Revelation, the message to uh, the seven churches. These churches are, of course, seven churches chosen by Christ to be the recipients of his message from heaven. Uh, a message both to these churches historically in their context, but also a message that rings out through the ages to all of God's people uh, until he returns for us and to establish his kingdom. These are churches in Asia Minor. These are churches that are in a real context with real conflicts and with real struggles and with real opportunity to either remain faithful to the Lord or to succumb. And so it is with all of those churches in Laodicea, particularly Laodicea is not only the last of the churches that we will cover, but it also has the dishonor or the ignoble honor, I guess, of being the worst church of all of the seven. It is the only church that receives only bad news, only a negative evaluation from the risen Lord. There's nothing good that he has to say about the church itself at all. There is nothing positive. Even with Sardis, as bad as the message was, he said there were some there who have not soiled their garments. There was at least some kind of remnant, some there who had not totally given themselves over to uh, the way of sin and disobedience, but not so with Laodicea. There is no encouraging word to this church, and that is uh, striking. The only positive note in the whole address comes at the end, and that is where the Lord offers to the church repentance, where he offers to the church the opportunity to turn to him and receive from him mercy and grace. That's the only glimmer of hope in the entire message. And it is a wonderful glimmer in the fact that it reminds us that none are beyond mercy, but it is only that, a glimmer. And this fact is even more striking in light of the reality that Christ does not rebuke this church for false doctrine. There's no word to them about succumbing to error and wrong teaching. He 
rebukes the churches of Pergamon, Thyatira, and Sardis for going the way of false teaching and listening to those who brought truth or something contrary to the gospel. He doesn't even mention Jewish apostasy and the kind of threat that comes through that error to the church as he did with the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. And he doesn't even rebuke them for holding to right doctrine while having the wrong heart and a lack of love. He doesn't do any of those things. He simply tells them that they are repulsive to him in their spiritual condition. He has nothing good to say. Only a devastating exposure of their spiritual rejection before Christ for being, in his own words, in verse 16, lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm, and even worse than that, and even deeper than that, and even more devastating to that, is they were blind to their condition. And so is his message to the church at Laodicea. They were essentially a church that was comfortable in conforming to the principles and attitudes of a culture of excess and ease. That was their essential problem. They were very comfortable in their situation. They lived in the condition of much excess, materially, much ease, in a a very unthreatened kind of situation. And they were okay with that, and they really rose no higher than that in terms of any kind of spiritual attainment or reality. Not unlike much of the Western church, and particularly the church in the United States. The reality is that comfort and wealth have a seductive pull upon the heart. A pull towards these two very devastating spiritual realities. Complacency and compromise. Complacency and compromise. And as a footnote to that, and we'll talk about this more in detail over the weeks, but this is why trials are God's mercies to us. Whatever God brings into our life to wake us out of any kind of spiritual slumber or any kind of spiritual dullness to kind of waken us up to our need, to the destitute reality of our situation outside of Christ, to expose any kind of sin in our heart, we should be thankful to God for these things. Anything that leads us to Christ leads us to find our strength in Him. And while it's not an easy path to get there, we would do well to come to understand the words of the Apostle Paul who says, when I am weak, then I am strong. And he got through there through much suffering. But suffering is something that the church at Laodicea lacked, and they bore the fruit of that lack of suffering and trial, and namely their spiritual apathy, indeed their spiritual deadness. So the Lord's message is to those who are secure in themselves and in their circumstances, but blind to their true spiritual condition and their true spiritual need. It is a message of somber warning, coupled with the astonishing invitation to forgiveness and intimate fellowship if they would but waken up to who Christ actually is and come to him. Now we're going to cover this passage under uh, uh, several headings, five headings. One, the context of the church. Uh, the credentials of Christ, uh, thirdly, his confrontation of their sin, uh, fourthly, his call to repentance, and fifthly, his covenant promise of hope. And that's a, a familiar pattern if you've been with us uh, throughout all of the churches. Uh, we're going to begin this morning by reading the passage and considering the context of the church, the context of the church. Uh, but before we get there again, let's read verse four, to beginning in verse 14 down to verse 22 of Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, 
says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so is the final message, again, of the risen Christ to the seven churches of Asia Minor. We'll begin this morning by looking briefly and broadly at the context of the church, the context of the church, and that is in the opening address in verse 14 to the angel of the church at Laodicea. He is speaking to a church in a city by the name of Laodicea, an ancient town. Let's understand just briefly the history of this town, Uh, a brief overview Uh, It was not one of the oldest towns, but it was said there's not a whole lot of information actually there. There's been some recent archaeological uh, involvement there, but outside of that, there's not a lot of knowledge that we have about the city itself. But it is understood to have been founded in about 250 B.C. by Antiochus II. Now, Antiochus was a part of the Seleucid dynasty, and you won't necessarily remember that, but that was a break-off of one of the four generals of Alexander the Great after his conquest, and he died, and there were four major generals who split up certain areas, and the Seleucid kingdom was one of those kingdoms, and Antiochus was from that line, that dynasty. And he was the founder in about 250 B.C. of the area, the city that is known as Laodicea. And it received its name actually after the name of his wife, whom he later divorced. But apparently they were in good terms at the time. And so he named the city after her. Uh, It for a brief period became a part of the kingdom of Pergamum in that area. But then a part of the Roman Empire in 133 B.C. And it was this coming and being engrafted into the burgeoning Roman Empire that really served as a catalyst to what it would become a city flourishing and wealthy and significant in that era. Uh, It also served as a significant place in the Roman Empire. It was a judicial city, a a place where the justice uh, of Rome was executed in that particular region. And just as a little point of interest, uh, Cicero, some of you all might know that name, uh, an ancient Roman uh, orator, was for a little while governor of this city. So it was a significant city. It was a known city. Where is it now? One notes this, that the city was destroyed and abandoned during the internecine, well, that means uh, uh, the kind of battle where both sides were uh, destroyed, uh, wars between the Muslims of the Middle Ages, and the ruins today are known as Skihisar and are all that remains. So if you go there today, it's not the flourishing, burgeoning, impressive city that it was at the time that they received this message from Christ. It's old ruins, and like I said, just now being excavated 
uh, and being uh, discovered uh, some new information about it. Where was the city located? Well, of course, it was located in Asia Minor. And being the last city addressed by Christ, for the beginning with Ephesus and now ending with Laodicea, it was the last city on what was, as we've mentioned before, a postal route. These were major cities, major stops. This is how information and communication and even commerce and so forth traveled largely through the area. So each of the cities was significant in terms of its location as well. And so it was with Laodicea. It was essentially the last city on this stop on this road, this travel that began in Ephesus. Uh, It's located in what is known as the lower... Oh, there it is. Isn't that helpful? So Ephesus, you go up, you go all the way down, and you can see the whole whole pattern of the church's address. And so we're down now in Laodicea, uh, down there at the bottom. Uh, It was about 40 miles from Philadelphia and about 100 miles west of Ephesus. And it was the key entry point of a major road that provided easy access into that upper valley and region, again, over of Asia Minor. So it was in a significant spot. Uh, One noted this, the city was the crossroads of north-south traffic between Sardis and Pera and east-west from the Euphrates to Ephesus. So... A lot of travel went there, through there. A lot of commerce went through there. It was a, it was a well-known city. It was an established city. Uh, the Lycus Valley, as I mentioned, in which it was located, uh, was on two levels. And here I'm quoting from one author who summarized it well. Uh, the Lycus Valley is on two levels, with Laodicea occupying the lower level and not far away, Colossae, the upper one, about 10 miles to the east. A third member of this tri-city combination was Hierapolis, lying six miles due north to Laodicea. So there were really these three cities. Now, you'll recognize the city of Colossae, of course, from the letter by the Apostle Paul addressed to them. We'll come back to that at the end, the letter to the Colossians. But there was Hierapolis, that was a significant city, and then there was Laodicea. And they were all three in close uh, proximity uh, and interconnected with each other. Now, again, while the location of the city was significant for several reasons, a key feature, uh, and it's noted in the Lord's address, was this, that Laodicea did not have an independent water supply. Now, this is more than just a little tidbit of information. Uh, It becomes significant in the city's dependence and, again, their identity in the Lord's address to them. Uh, Not having an independent source of water, they received water from surrounding areas via an aqueduct. Now, that you can still see there. Some of it was... Uh, underground, you can see an above-ground uh, aqueduct where they had received water from surrounding uh, areas. One of those was Hierapolis, again, six miles to the south. It was known for its hot springs. There's some of the aqueducts, actually, that you can see. Boy, Kevin is doing excellent back there. Good job. <laughs> He's keeping up. And then we have some of the hot springs. Now, actually, these hot springs, now they don't always have water in them, but when they do, you can see they're very beautiful. You can travel there today and see these springs up there. Those are lime uh, deposits. I think there's another picture of it as well that just shows the, the beautiful setting that it's in. This was about six miles away, and if you see those arrows, those were, were approximate locations also of uh, Colossae and uh, of Laodicea in relation to Hierapolis uh, there with those pools. So it's a beautiful area. 
a lot of travel went to it. Even now, you can still go there and go into these hot springs, which had medicinal qualities and so forth. But what was significant in terms of water source is that Laodicea received water uh, from these hot springs. That was part of the water that was transferred down through these aqueducts uh, to supply to the lower city of Laodicea. And the hot springs of, again, as I noted here, Hierapolis were known for their medicinal qualities. And Colossae was known, which was also nearby. It, it was also known for its uh, uh, abundance of water. But it had, opposite of Hierapolis, uh, these cool springs and refreshing water, which were also uh, known throughout that world. But of these three cities, it was Laodicea who was dependent upon them and had neither of the qualities of the hot water of Hierapolis or of the cold, cool refreshing springs of Colossae. And so what happened is, as this water was uh, brought into the city of Laodicea, uh, it had none of the original benefits of its source. It wasn't the hot medicinal qualities, it didn't have the hot medicinal qualities if you went to Hierapolis and sat in those springs when, uh, when you could, nor did it have any of the qualities of Colossae with the cool and refreshing water. Rather, one describes it as this, that the water flowed in from the hot mineral streams, and now I'm quoting, Denizili, the modern town five miles distance, and it would have, speaking of the water, would have cooled only slowly in the pipes, and on arrival the, su- the supply would have been tepid and its effect Emetic, and that means that it would cause vomiting and cause sickness. And so it wasn't, it wasn't even good water when it arrived uh, to them. Now, here's why that's important. The last statement there, in, in terms of the temperature of the water and the effect of the water if it was drunk, uh, has at least two realities to it. One, the water had a great many mineral deposits as it was coming down from Hierapolis, and that's what made it uh, cause someone to be nauseous, uh, whatever. There were actually holes that were drilled into the, the, uh, the pathways of the water to release some of these minerals and so forth and some of the buildup in it. But nonetheless, it still arrived with them and was really undrinkable directly out without uh, causing some harm. Number two, it brings out the reality that its temperature made it devoid of any natural qualities that would have the benefit, again, that it did from either the cold water in Colossae or the hot water up above in Hierapolis. And this is what is behind the Lord's words. This was a well-known reality of the city. And so he tells them, you are neither cold nor you are hot. In verse 15, I wish that you were cold or hot, but you are lukewarm. Now we'll get into this in more detail down the road. But here I would just note, there are two ways to understand the Lord's rebuke here in relation to this reality of the water supply. He could be rebuking them for their tepid, vague, non-committal kind of spirituality that falls short of spiritual reality and usefulness. On this view, then, he's rebuking them for being dull in their commitment to the gospel, to know little of the spiritual depth and the life of the gospel, and to, in fact, be primed for judgment and rejection by Christ himself, he said, spit them out of the mouth. And that would have been reminiscent of those who took in the bad water and drank it directly and would spit it out because of its taste and because of the nausea that it would produce. And Christ is saying, that's how you are to me as a church. You are no good. You have no benefit. And you are making me, in a sense, spiritually nauseous. And I want to spit you out of my mouth. That's one view. Another 
way to take this, a more recent view, is that he's rebuking them not so much for the temperature of the water, but for its bad quality. And so it's the bad quality that is the emphasis in this view. Uh, and they would say then it's not so much that it's undrinkable in that sense and because of its uh, tepid temperature, but rather it is because uh, it's not really very useful for much. And that's the emphasis this other position holds. Uh, one gives this summary of that. Uh, the church in Laodicea may have seemed notably successful to the outside observer and was itself blind to its own spiritual effectiveness. The affluent society was far from the sources of its life-giving water, and when by its own resources it had sought to remedy the deficiency, the resulting supply was bad, both tepid and emetic. Judgment is passed on the works of the Laodicean, not their enthusiasm. So he's saying it's not so much that the, the, the water wasn't hot or cold. They, they would say it was really just that it was bad and that it was ineffective and it was unhelpful. And that's what Jesus is rebuking the church for. And that's very possible. Uh, I would lend, uh, tend to lean towards the emphasis being on the temperature of the water because that's precisely what he emphasizes, the hot and the cold, the contrast that you're neither of these extremes. But in either case, it doesn't really matter. In either sense, there's, there's no need to be overly sharp there. The reality is the water was no good. It, wasn't, it didn't have any benefit for any, uh, uh, any natural benefits without being treated. It, it, it arrived there with nothing cool or hot to make it beneficial in that sense. And it came uh, with not the purity and the cleanness that made it readily uh, usable to all of those who received it. And so both of those are true. And the rebuke of Jesus is this, that both in the, by spiritual analogy, you are both tepid and unuseful for anything good for the gospel. Your works are empty and your spiritual life is vain and empty and ready to be discarded by me. That's the idea. And they would have had a living illustration of that by the mere fact of where they were. A third aspect of the city, then, uh, is its economy, which again plays important into the Lord's uh, message to them. Laodicea, as I noted, was a very wealthy city due to its location and production of wool and that it was a banking center. Its location, as I noted, was in a, in a main road of travel, so that means a lot of commerce, a lot of trade, a lot of people went through there, and when that happens, there was a lot of wealth, a lot of goods, and so forth, that also went through the city, which made it uh, very wealthy. It was also a main way that Rome transported goods from Ephesus and from the sea uh, over into the inland, and so all of these things made it, uh, by its location, a very important city and a prosperous city. Uh, I noted production of wool. That's often noted about this uh, city, particularly uh, the ancient city of Laodicea. Uh, around surrounding it is grassy plains. It provided good pasture for sheep. And it was particularly known for a breed of sheep that was uh, unique in the softness of its wool and the darkness of its color. Again, one ancient historian uh, put it this way. The country around Laodicea produces sheep remarkable not only uh, because of its softness of their wool in which they surpass even that of Miletus, but also for its raven black color, and they get splendid revenue from it, he said. So they had quite an industry. Their location, because of trade and commercial access, uh, they were, had rich uh, exports uh, in, in wool and the sheep that they had. They were known for it in a significant way. Uh, they were also a banking center, 
It was an important center for the retaining and exchange of money. Uh, Many prominent figures would go there and cash large sums of money uh, as they traveled through that region because it was known for that. But particularly what I want to get to is it was also known in, in its culture for having citizens, individual citizens of great wealth, of very significant wealth. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, in some of the great works that are there, uh, so they have a stadium, they have baths, they have uh, many of the typical works of a significant city in that area, a Greco-Roman city. Uh, they had that there, and some of these great works uh, have the names of those who bequeathed them to them. One example of that is someone by the name of Hero, who bequeathed to the city more, I'm quoting here, 2,000 talents and embellished it with many public works. 2,000 talents. Now, just to put that in perspective, if you'll remember in Matthew 18, the slave that begged for forgiveness from uh, the king owed 10,000 talents. So we're into, the, which was an impossibly large amount of money. It was uh, the idea there, it was an impayable amount of money. There was no way that he could return that. Here, a particular citizen was so wealthy that they gave 2,000 talents and an incredibly significant amount of money uh, to put their name on some public works and so forth. This is behind Jesus' rebuke in verse 17. Where they said, I am rich, I've become wealthy, I have, no need of, I have need of nothing. They were extremely self-sufficient culture. And this, this then became, in terms of its culture, uh, a key component of the general attitude and mindset of this area. It had a strong sense of independence and self-sufficiency. And historically, uh, one often cited illustration of this uh, it comes... Uh, in the way that they, by their own strength and resources, rebuilt their city. So this area, as we've noted in, in some of the other churches, was prone to seismic activity and to earthquakes. And Laodicea was no different. A significant earthquake in AD 16, which destroyed many of the cities in that area, required them to rebuild. In order to rebuild, they appealed to Rome. And this wasn't uncommon that Rome would do this uh, for important places gave them funds so that they could rebuild their city and get back up to snuff and and get back to where they were with the assistance of Rome. And in the earthquake in AD 16, Laodicea is recorded as having done that. Uh, They did receive money and they, they did use the resources of Rome to rebuild. But there was another significant earthquake in AD 60. Uh, in which, again, many of the cities around there were destroyed, and that process happened again where they appealed to Rome, and Rome sent them money. But not Laodicea. Not Laodicea. And this became a very significant point in their history. Whether Rome offered the money or they just never appealed to it is a matter of discussion, but the end result is that they did not receive money from Rome in order to rebuild their citizens, uh, rebuild their city. And the reason that they didn't is because it was a statement on their own behalf that they had the resources themselves to do it. They didn't need Rome's help. And that was extremely significant, and some could even see that as a snub. But in reality, what it was, was their, their expression of saying, we don't need any help from anyone outside of ourselves. We can do it ourselves. And again, this is abundantly testified to in that area and some of the, the remains that are found. The citizens themselves of significant wealth made these large donations. And in fact, the city was even greater after they rebuilt after 60 AD than it was prior to that event. 
They did even more monumental structures to give testimony to who they were and, again, to their great wealth. For example, the stadium, and I think there's a picture of that, it's an arena 900 feet long with continuous seating around the whole circumference, bears the name of one of these benefactors named Nicostratus, who notes on the, the inscription that it was constructed, uh, that's uh, the amphitheater, but okay, we'll just keep it there, we're going to get there, uh, that it was constructed out of his own wealth or from his own wealth or from his own resources. And other great works that were in the city bear these inscriptions of the name. We see that in our time, right? A college building, this is the so-and-so center, or a medical building or a college bears the name of something. And it's a way for that person uh, essentially to say, uh, look what I did, look what I can do. And so they did that uh, here. They were no different. And so many of the, the finds have these significant major works of uh, donations, built by donations of their own citizens that build their name. So it was extremely, extremely wealthy. This is a picture just by interest of the, uh, of the amphitheater. If you look up at the far uh, left-hand corner, that's how it was. But it's in the process of being uh, reconstructed, which is the bottom right-hand corner by archaeologists, uh, and being put back together. So it was, it was a significant structure, and that too also bore the name of a benefactor. There's a road that goes into, a main road that goes into uh, the area there. You can see these are beautiful, actually, cities. It'd be great to visit there if some of you may have done that. But the point here in relation to the Lord's message and understanding their context is they were a very wealthy city. They were a very wealthy city. They had massive amounts of wealth that identified them as a culture. And this, uh, the influence of this wealth as a culture gave them overall a general kind of attitude of being, we're okay. Very self-sufficient. I often describe our area and much of this part of New England as being secular uh, and affluent and religious. Secular, affluent, and religious. There's a religious note in terms of the, uh, the influence of Catholicism, very secular in its mindset, which comes from its affluence. And so we're not a whole lot different than this area as well, uh, where we live in many parts of the United States, and the United States actually as a whole. Of course, we understand that wealth is not the issue, but the love of it. But the love of it, the rest in it, and apparently the church that Jesus is addressing here came to rest more in the luxuries of their wealth than of the luxuries of the gospel and the realities of the gospel. They became very satisfied with where they were. And Jesus is essentially rebuking them and saying, your self-satisfaction to me is repulsive. It is, it is something I cannot stand. I need to rid myself of it. As one noted, it is likely that the church in Laodicea took on the standards of that society. And it's this tendency then that is seen in the rebuke of the Lord. He says, you say that I am rich in verse 17. I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. He says, you do not know that in all of your wealth and all of your pomp and all of your splendor, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You don't see reality. Your affluence has blinded you to truth. Your affluence and your comfort has blinded you to the realities of the gospel that you profess. And so it was with this city. What was their religion? 
Well, just briefly, it was a typical city. They had multiple gods. Uh, a chief deity was Zeus, but it was, it was known mostly, and the local deity was one named Menkaru, and it had to do with, uh, his, as with some of the other cities as well, uh, medical and healing. And so, so Laodicea was actually a significant city in terms of its medical knowledge and training, and even is known for creating an eye salve, uh, a composite of various elements that was sold and exported around and that people also would come there to receive care, particularly for their eyes. And it is this that Jesus mentions uh, again in his address to them when he says at the end of verse 18, uh, and he mentions eye salve to anoint your eyes. In other words, don't use that for your physical eyes. You think that's helpful. What you need is true eye salve to give you spiritual eyes. Again, connecting with things that would have been familiar with them. There was a large Jewish population there. And that's interesting to note. Uh, first of all, the, the Jewish population there, particularly even by the time that, that Jesus was addressing this church, is on the high estimates uh, around 50,000. Around 50,000. So there was a significant presence of Jew, Jews and with that Jewish religion there. I'll mention something about that. Again, in just a bit. Uh, and this is a, was an ancient reality of the city. As a matter of fact, Antiochus III, uh, around the 2nd century BC, is said to have settled about 2,000 Jews there from Babylon and some other regions. Uh, and then many Jews went there because of the opportunity for prosperity. And again, uh, by 62 AD, actually, there was some estimates are as high as 50,000. But what's interesting is this. Here's what's interesting is that the Jews aren't mentioned. Uh, they're not mentioned in the Lord's rebuke here. Again, the Jews were mentioned in their persecution of the church in the message to Smyrna and also uh, to Philadelphia, what we just looked at. But here there's no mention of them. And, and that's a curious fact because of such a significant population. Why would there have been no mention of them? Well, the, the most likely reason is because the Jews, just like the Gentiles in that area, had become so self-sufficient and so complacent with their culture and with the affluence that they enjoyed that even the Jews among there and their prosperity just kind of melded into the general milieu of the culture and the thinking, and they weren't even persecuting the church. They themselves had diminished and compromised, even in their own zeal, unlike even some of the other areas. And so the picture you get of this city overall is that it was just a place where it was easy to be and didn't require much. There was a great amount of wealth and that poured over from the culture into the church and even in the influence that it had on, in this case, even the Jew, Jewish religion. Again, I, as we consider that, we can see that we're, we're not so different. And we can see throughout the history of the church at her most prosperous in terms of material blessing, she was at her most destitute in terms of spiritual reality. And that's often how it happens in our own lives as well. When we are the most comfortable and unthreatened, we are at the weakest point in terms of our spiritual life and our spiritual strength. And so here is this church situated in, this, in these conditions. And Jesus says, it's not well with you. You think it's well with you, but it's not well with you. Now let's just back up in terms of introduction here. Consider, well, where did this church come from? 
where did this church come from? And this helps gives us a, a little bit more insight into the people that he is uh, addressing and some of the things that uh, threatened them uh, in the area in which they were. For that, let's turn over just briefly to the book of Colossians. Just briefly to the book of Colossians. Now, you remember there were these three cities. There was Colossae, there was Hierapolis, and then there was Laodicea. And these three cities were sort of a tri-city area. They were close to one another in proximity. And there was some interdependence upon them. And again, particularly Laodicea for the sources of water and so forth. So in addressing the letter to Colossae, there is, um, uh, he's addressing a region very close to that of Laodicea. But more than that, he makes a direct reference to Laodicea in his letter to the city of Colossae, and particularly identifying even uh, how it was evangelized and who evangelized it. So if you'll notice in verse 6 of Colossians, Paul is giving his praise uh, to this church. He's saying the love in verse 4, which you have for all the saints, uh, is evident, and it's a love that flows out of the hope. Verse 5, that you have laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. And this gospel, how did it come to you? It came to you just as in all the world. It's constantly bearing fruit and increasing just as since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Verse 7, just as you learned it from who? Epaphras. Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant or slave, who is a faithful servant of Christ Jesus on your behalf. So apparently, and we'll come back to him again at the end of the letter, apparently, as Paul, back in uh, Acts 16, was forbidden to go into the region by the Spirit, if you remember, uh, he was forbidden to go into Asia Minor. And so he ended up taking a, another route and, and evangelizing in different areas, but he didn't end up in the church in Ephesus, uh, which is in Asia Minor. And it was in the church in Ephesus that he remained in Acts 19 for a period of years and from which the area was evangelized. Let me just read that to you. Acts 19.10, he says this. Well, actually in verse 9, uh, he says, Some were becoming hardened in disobedience, that is, of the Jews, speaking evil of the way before the people. He withdrew from them uh, and took some of the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So most likely, as Paul was evangelizing and ended up in Ephesus and then planted himself there for about a period of two years, Epaphras was a convert, most likely, of that ministry. And having heard the gospel and the word of truth, having been gifted by the Spirit of God to be an evangelist, went out and took the area, the gospel, out into the region of the Lycus Valley, and it was through his ministry that were established the church at Colossae, and then again Hierapolis and of Laodicea, who's addressed uh, here. And so Epaphras was really the evangelist. He was a fellow servant of Paul, a fellow slave of Christ, who evangelized uh, that area and established the church. Uh, he is mentioned again in a special greeting at the end of Colossians uh, by the Apostle Paul, as, he's, as he often does, ending his letters on a personal note. He mentions in verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prison, prisoner. He mentions Barnabas, his cousin Mark, about whom, if you've received instruction, he comes to you, welcome him, which many of you will know as a footnote. It was Mark... Uh, and, dis and a disagreement over Mark, Barnabas's cousins, that caused uh, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas to split and to go different ways because 
Mark had left them on their first missionary journey. Paul didn't trust him on their second missionary journey. Barnabas wanted to take him still. They couldn't come to an agreement, and so they ended up going in their different ways. But here, Paul is addressing him with such tenderness and showing that his heart for him was still loving. And it also shows that Mark had matured and grown. And he says here uh, that you are to welcome him. He apparently had a ministry that would have been identified to them. In verse 11, he mentions Jesus, who's called Justice, fellow workers of the kingdom of God. And then you get down to verse 12, and again, he mentions Epaphras, Epaphras, excuse me, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnest for you and his prayers, so that you may stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. Verse 13, I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. He mentions Luke again, and then he mentions down in verse 16, When this letter is read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Now that is, what letter is that, is a point of great discussion. Uh, Very commonly, it's understood to be a letter of Ephesus, which is commonly not exclusively viewed as a circular letter because in some early manuscripts there was no name there. And so they think it was a letter then that would just be addressed to uh, uh, different churches and Ephesus is uh, the one that we have on manuscripts. Uh, that's possible. It's not certain. There are other options. But the, this may be a lost letter. But the important thing for us is here simply to note that this letter of Colossians was also to be sent to the Laodiceans, Laodiceans and no doubt also to the church there that would have been at Hierapolis. So the contents of the message of Colossae were an important message of the Apostle Paul for all of those churches. And they would have received this letter from the Apostle Paul. They would have been privy to a sound ministry and an effective ministry of Epaphras who went and brought the gospel to them, the gospel that he had received from Paul, took it into that area, and the church was established. So they were the recipients of spiritual blessing. They were recipients of, uh, through this letter here, an apostolic ministry of the Apostle Paul. Now, at the time of writing Colossians, interestingly, Paul had not actually visited the church. So he had not actually been to any of those churches in the Lycus Valley yet. He still was up at Ephesus, was his main area of ministry. Uh, He says that in chapter 2 of Colossians, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Greatest struggle of what? Well, his struggle for the gospel, his struggle to defend truth. Now, in Paul's writing Colossians, it's one of what's known as prison epistles. He's actually writing this from prison. And when he refers to my fellow prisoners, some of the others in uh, this letter and, and, of course, other places. But here he's saying, I'm struggling for this church at Laodicea. I'm struggling that they would remain faithful in the gospel. I'm, I'm struggling for them, even though he says again at the end, they have not personally seen my face. But I'm working in, through the gospel in my ministry, in verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love, attaining to the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. 
And it's possible that even Paul there is, is hinting to the fact that, of saying that you're not to find your wealth in the culture around you. You're not to find your security in those things that you possess in this world. But the true wealth which is found in Christ. The true treasures which are found in Christ. The true soul-satisfying realities that are found in Christ and come from the full assurance, he says, of understanding. And then he says in verse 3, that familiar passage, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he says, I'm striving that this church at Laodicea, the church at Colossae, the church at Hierapolis, and all of the churches that are in Jesus Christ would come to realize the greatness and the glory of the gospel and know that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the one to whom we can have the full assurance of understanding. He is the one that is given for the full satisfaction of our souls. Now it is interesting also in the book of Colossians that he is addressing some Jewish influence there. He, he brings that up in the comparison of Christ being circumcised for us, that, that the true circumcision of what Christ was for us when he died on the cross, when he was, gave his body up to, as an atonement for sin. He says, uh, having in verse 13, forgiven us all of our transgressions. He mentions about the tendency to... Uh, be influenced by elevating certain ceremonial or cultic kind of aspects of worship uh, he, and, and sort of spiritual connection with otherworldly beings. He says in verse 18, or excuse me, in verse 16, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or Sabbath day or so forth. These are a mere shadow the substance belongs to Christ. And then he talks about, don't, don't, don't follow those who claim to have some super special way to be spiritual. They have some super special way to overcome sin. And he talks about the elementary principles of the world in verse 20. And then verse 23 says, these have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement. But they're no value against fleshly lust. What is the value against fleshly lust and these things that would steal our affections away? Verse 3, or chapter 3. You've been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. And that was a message to Laodicea. That's a message to the church at Colossae, all of the churches. Don't set your mind on those things that are on the earth, but set your mind on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Apparently, they did not listen to that message. Apparently, they did not heed the apostolic warning. Apparently, they started by believing the gospel brought to them by Epaphras, by embracing the Christ that was preached to him. But somewhere along the way, the glory of Christ became more and more dim, and the glory of their own condition of affluence and wealth and ease became more and more satisfying. They had drifted away. They had compromised. They no longer held fast to the gospel that they heard at first. And that is ultimately then the warning that we'll consider in more detail. Is that we can start well, but it is finishing well that matters. We can start well in embracing the gospel and then easily compromise because it's the easiest way. 
We have to know that comfort has a seduction to it, a sort of wealth has a kind of sensuality to it that can hold great weight on the soul. It, not, it is not in itself bad, but when it becomes our ease and our comforts to have a greater priority in our life than obedience to Christ and knowing Him and having Him as our treasure, then it becomes spiritually deadly. And we can fall into this same warning of being lukewarm. Lukewarm. So my question to us as we just introduce, and again we'll look at these things more closely, is does this connect with you at any point? Does this connect with you at any point in your spiritual life? Do you, do you see that whether it be wealth or not even wealth, just the comforts of life and the ease of living in our culture, that the things of Christ grow strangely dim rather than the other way around? The things of this world growing strangely dim. Do you find that truth and time in the word just doesn't have quite the same kind of interest and it's, it's just easier to compromise and go with the flow? Do you find it's easier to try to blend in with the culture than stand against the culture where it contradicts the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you find those areas in your heart? Do you find that you have a great sense of satisfaction by looking at outward things but not considering that inwardly you are blind and wretched and naked and need the covering of Christ daily as your satisfaction and your true food? Those are questions that we have to ask ourselves, and that's what he's going to be confronting us with in this message to Laodicea. But we can begin to ask ourselves that now and ask God to reveal if there is any of those areas in our life, and particularly as we come to the table. And we remember that we are a part of a kingdom that has riches and wealth beyond what we can imagine. But here's the funny thing, isn't it? In heaven, there's streets of gold, but we won't care about the gold, right? It'll just be a reflection of Christ. And that's the heart that we should have now. That everything that we have is seen as a blessing. We enjoy the good things that God gives to us, of course. But what they do when rightly received is lead us to worship, obedience, uncompromising faith in Him who's rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Let me pray and then we'll prepare our hearts for the table. Father, thank you for giving us this time where we can come together and consider together and take of this sign together, this symbol that you have ordained for us, that your church has practiced throughout the ages. A time that reminds us of a body broken, of a death on our behalf, of blood spilt, A time that reminds us in this symbol of your sovereign faithfulness that you made a promise and you kept it in the sending of Christ, in the establishment of a kingdom, in the giving of a Savior, in the redeeming of a people. We are reminded of those things and we're reminded as we come to the table that not only were you faithful in keeping the promise to provide for us a Savior, a final sacrifice, But it's a reminder that you will be faithful to the promise that's yet future to us to establish a kingdom on earth, to bring us into the full experience of our redemption in Christ, to know the glories of being in your presence, unhindered and unblinded by the sin that remains in us this side of heaven. And so the sign and the symbol 
point us to you. They point us to your promises. They point us to your present intercession for us and the future glory that's ours in you. So refresh our hearts. Encourage us by these things. We ask you to do this by your spirit. And we pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.